Hello, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Sarah. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Good. And uh, welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Sarah and Paul's Do Do Social Work. So this week we're going to be talking about working with domestic abuse in families as a social worker. And you know more about this than I do, um, I guess, because um, I know enough from kind of practice, from being in practice, a little bit from research, but I suppose for you, you've got extreme wealth of knowledge around kind of domestic abuse. I don't want to set myself up as an expert by any <laughs> means Paul but, but no. um so if I talk too much definitely I I give you permission to interrupt me or ask questions at All any right. time. You accused me of mansplaining last time and, and, and I won't do that though. That won't go down well, <laughs> well in this episode. <laughs> no okay all right. There's all different strands to why I feel very passionate about this work and that might be down to you know I believe strongly in our own experiences bring us to the work that we do and that's something that we've talked about I feel really strongly around approaching the world with a feminist lens and that also eradicating violence and abuse full stop you know and that actually relationships are such an integral part of our experience as beings Mm. and that relationships shouldn't be underpinned by abuse and power and control and we know that that happens throughout society at at so many different levels really and so I I could go on for ages but it's just something that I feel so strongly about and it's just something that I've kind of like really dedicated a lot of my time and learning to. That's great so I'm really excited to hear more about it then so let's do our do-do's first so go on you you can go first. So my do-do you're gonna laugh at me again because it is like massively hippie. (laughs) Okay. I have to stay true to myself. Um, it was a, it's a full moon. It's a full moon today. Oh, I'm actually missing. I'm actually missing the full moon rise by being here, guys. Right. But what I did do was go to a full moon meditation <laughs> ceremony. But what I really liked about it, it's just about creating intentions and inner peace. And when I come away from that space, it works. Well, good for you. Like you can learn something from people that you meet. I guess. Absolutely. And I believe that in the work that we do. Yeah, but I and it's connecting it. with nature and all of that kind of stuff, which is really important. I wasn't outside in the woods. We're on a Zoom call, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a Zoom call. A group. Connecting with nature. No. <laughs> right, I'm not even going to try and explain to you. It's about creating opportunities for people to come together. Okay, sorry. No, and no. you go away and do your own work. Okay. And so what's your do-do this week? Well, uh, I've just come back from Norway, as you probably know. Of course I know. Fantastic. <laughs> I saw the green light. The northern, northern lights. lights. Yes. Um, so, yes, I went there for a research visit, met all my kind of idols, my research, academic idols. It's all very geeky and all that oh kind of God. stuff. Oh, God. Has anyone got a restraining order out <laughs> <of me? laughs> So in uh, Norway, in these different uh, in these different institutes, they basically have people from... So they have child geographers, they have sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, all working together. And it just really brings home to me that we should be learning from each other and learning more kind of cross-disciplinary ways of working okay amazing that sounds really interesting oh, and so quite good. like motivating and inspiring yeah and in norway like not at home on a zoom call <laughs> not home on a zoom call okay poo-poos then raising agents <laughs> <laughs> tell me more well it's passover so uh so we're not allowed to have raising agents for eight days so that's things like bread beer pastries pastries 
Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> obviously Marmite, because that's yeast extract. So all of these things, so yes. Is that easy for you or hard, eight days? Like that seems You would like think that. it'd be really easy, but it's yeah. actually quite hard. Okay. Because it's everywhere. Yeast is everywhere. So my poo-poo is interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I'm very, you know, privileged. I recognise my privileged position of, of having uh, my own home. But my mortgage has changed, and so that means my fixed rate has come to an end, and I'm having to get a new mortgage, and my it's going to go up quite a lot of money per month, and that just feels really rubbish. And I realise I'm I'm not alone. It's happened to so many people yeah, recently, yeah. and it just feels rubbish. And I don't know what the solution is. But that's my poo poo this week, Paul. So let's get into it then. Let's, let's make a bit of a start. So, Paul, should we start with you giving us the, a definition of domestic abuse, which can be helpful as a kind of reminder to all of the things that we're thinking about when we're talking about domestic abuse as a kind of whole? Well, domestic uh, abuse, domestic violence, is refers to, I guess, a pattern of abuse, doesn't it? Um, a pattern of abusive behaviour in any relationship um, that's used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over the other partner. This can include things like physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse. And we have things like relatively new, I say relatively new, but I suppose in the last 10 years, things such as coercive control, which we'll kind of go into as well, won't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in terms of when we think about the context of law, and we can talk a bit around the recent, I say recent, it's been a while that the Domestic Abuse Act in 21 has come into force, but not everything has kind of been implemented. It's kind of come at gradual stages mm. but absolutely when we're thinking about the term coercive control that became recognized as a form of abuse in 2015 mm. which actually if we're now in 2023 seems like quite a while ago but I'm also mindful that there are people in practice or people working frontline coming mm. into contact with people who've experienced domestic abuse and don't actually know or understand or know how to recognize what coercive control is so it's still mm. a really big topic that isn't fully understood and I think that's really important, isn't it? Because although we might not be specialised in it, sometimes we will see the indicators of it around us, but mm. just not recognise them. Mm. I can remember once I went into a family home and there were things like receipts on the fridge, for okay. example. Mm -hmm. And it kind of transpired later that um, there was domestic abuse happening within that family. It was only later that I started kind of thinking in terms of, oh, I remember just little things that this person had said, such as they called me the B word and all of that kind of stuff. That's normal. And I was saying, no, that's not normal in relationships. Mm. And I guess just picking up on that example, Paul, mm. as you said, you didn't notice that as a potential sign of, of abuse happening. If somebody's perpetrating abuse, then the person that the abuse is happening to is, if we're thinking about the context of financial abuse, is that having to prove how much stuff has been spent, Absolutely. exactly kind of itemising exactly what's been spent, how it's been spent because people don't have control of their own finances yeah. for example so yeah. in those situations something as, as as kind of innocent as a receipt then actually can give warning signs that there is uh, abuse or coercive control and, and power dynamics within that relationship and it became complicated very very quickly as well in that particular case because what happened was because the man had complete control over all the finances uh, he also owned the house 
unsurprisingly. When it came to them being split up, Mm -hmm. we had to go to court because he was basically throwing out his partner and the kids Mm -hmm. because the house was his. That's interesting. And I think just as you kind of said, you know, you gave that brief example and you kind of referred to the man being the perpetrator. And I think it's just Mm. really helpful to say, you know, as we're talking today and give a kind of a bit of context around the use of language, Mm. because we know that it's a crime that affects all genders, all socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnicities and abilities. But I think it's also important that we know that domestic abuse does affect men. um, But statistically, Statistically, women are far more likely to experience domestic abuse. So we know it's specifically a gendered crime and that women are more likely to experience domestic abuse in their lifetime. So for example, the statistics around that say that one in four women will experience domestic abuse within their lifetime, one in six men. Mm. And that these figures are just kind of what's reported. So there's a lot that goes unreported as well, which I also kind of want to recognise. But I think the reason why it's important to state that is, particularly within our work that we've done with working within children's services, the majority of cases that I've worked with Mm. that the victim survivor has been the female and the male has been the perpetrator. Mm. And I also recognise it's not always really that clear cut Mm. as well. But I guess it's just helpful for the listeners that as we're talking, we might kind of slip into that language of the man or the woman. But Mm. actually, whilst we're doing that, we're also recognising that people from all genders Mm. can be the victim survivor of domestic abuse. And also, as I go on to use the term victim and survivor... I also want to acknowledge that there's lots of people who don't identify as victim or survivor, yet they are the people that have had abuse perpetrated to them. I also want to acknowledge that we will be referring using the terms victim and survivor, but that doesn't kind of fit everybody's experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very complicated. But I suppose what I don't like and what I want us to steer away from is sometimes you get, especially on things like social media, you get all the stuff about people saying, well, you know, it's... it's they kind of both sides kind of domestic abuse and violence. What we're not saying is that... So let's think of the uh, Amber Heard case, for example. Okay. Where there was lots of talk about, well, it was just a toxic relationship. Yeah. There was nothing to do with domestic abuse, nothing to do with domestic violence there. It was just two people toxic relationship and yeah lots of counter allegations were happening there weren't they exactly the courts decided what the courts decided but there were power differentials there just in terms of status but in terms of physicality so just to put things down to well that's just what happens in toxic relationship and both sides are to blame i don't or they're they're both as bad as each other or the other term that i've heard in the not recently i think it's fair to say is she gives as good as she gets yeah i mean it's terrible it's absolutely terrible and it's victim blaming language and it's something I haven't heard for a long time but I think it's something we're I hope to think that we're moving away from Mm. but that kind of victim blaming does exist within some kind of either within the media for certain but also I guess within practice it's it's really important that people are mindful that victims survivors are are believed and that uh, we're not victim blaming in the use of language so for example just talking a bit about victim language and you know victim shaming working with people uh, of lived experience of domestic abuse over over the years people have experienced terms for example of mothers being seen to failed to protect yes so mothers being kind of held responsible for the harm that they received and the harm that their children received so mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of victim blaming of they failed to protect records that um say mother reports domestic abuse 
no evidence mm. and it's like well no you children's social work records might not have any evidence but actually if you looked further or if you were you know there there is evidence but it's just not available to you in the, in this time that you're writing this report so there's no evidence there's domestic abuse doesn't mean that it hasn't occurred so yes. it's that kind of like the connotations that mum or the victim survivors making it up mm. or another one is that they let them in so when the perpetrator comes around late at night banging the door being really abusive on the side of the door the fact that the the victim or the survivor then opens the door and lets them in mm. and then it's their fault that they were in the house because the person opened the door mm. and actually through my work with victim and survivors they'll say I opened the door because I was really scared that he was going to escalate unless I complied or it was a way of kind of complying and pacifying mm. to try and reduce the risk not trying to escalate it in that moment I didn't know what else to do and so it's about holding that in mind as well when you're working with people and I guess as we're talking today you know some other kind of key messages really because it's important that we hold people with lived experience and and the victims and survivors in mind as we're talking mm. is that you know they want professionals and, and social workers to know is that experiencing domestic abuse really severely impacts on their physical and mental health yeah what that means is that people may present with that with trauma responses and it's around what they'd like is for social workers to understand what trauma responses look like so that when they're working with a victim survivor that they're recognizing the behavior for what it is and why they're behaving like that yeah. um can i just go back to a little bit to the the gender stuff yeah sure about women um being seen as i guess as responsible because mm-hmm. i'm writing a little bit about that at the moment um yeah. from a book i found it really interesting how so social work is all social work is gendered whether we're talking about adults and care of um older people um, and responsibilities for that, mm-hmm. but also when we come to children's social work and children seen uh, mothers being seen as bad mothers, um, solely responsible for the upbringing of children, mm-hmm. and being seen as the risks, or else they're seen as the saviors. We take children from the bad mothers and give them to the good mothers, okay. and usually it's women. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of social workers are, mi- are women, and so all these caring responsibilities are always landed upon women. And I think it's really interesting as well that we start blaming women for not protecting children when actually it can be other people, usually men, who are the perpetrators of abuse. But it's really interesting topic that the kind of history and how the misogynistic and yeah. the patriarch is kind of like formed over years. So, for example, I don't know if you ever use the term rule of thumb. So oh yeah. So the rule of thumb, Paul, is a common law where it was perfectly acceptable to beat your wife with a stick, but as long as that the stick wasn't any thicker than your thumb. thumb. I think that's a myth, though. Like, um, like. Uh... Are you sure this isn't now like a man telling a woman <laughs> that she's making it all up and it's not true? Well, I'm not gaslighting you, or maybe I am. No, I, I think I know what I'm talking about. No, not... <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, not because I'm a man. Okay, I'm going to look it up, I'm going to look it up. The other thing that I'm going to say then, if that is or isn't a myth, another law, and it's really annoying that I don't have the date right in front of me because I think it's like 1872 or maybe even like early 19-something that said beating your wife, again, is perfectly acceptable, but they put a law in to stop it happening between 10 o'clock at night and 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't know about that. I'm telling you it's true. Don't (laughs) you tell me if it's possible or not, Paul. Okay. And do you want to hear why? Why? Because it was disturbing the neighbours. So you're not allowed to beat your wife from 10 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning because it upsets the neighbours, not because it's causing harm. Mm. And that was a law. Yeah. And so you're telling me the rule of thumb couldn't possibly exist. Okay, 
a modern folk etymology holds the phrase is derived from the maximum width of a stick allowed for wife beating under English common law, but no such law ever existed. Can I, should, uh, just to give you a bit of something. Where did it start? Where did it come from? From a man. So this belief may have originated in a rumoured statement by the 18th century judge Sir Francis Buller. The rumour... Okay, but it came from somewhere then. Yeah. If he didn't say it, yeah. who started it and why? What do you mean? Well, it's a thing, isn't it? It's a saying. This usage of the phrase can be traced back to the 17th century and has been associated with various trades where quantities were measured by comparison to the width, length of thumb. Including an instrument to beat your wife with. What we do know is, <laughs> yeah. is that men did used to beat their wives with sticks. Yes. Can okay. we agree on that? We agreed. Okay, fine. Right, <laughs> moving on. Can we come back to some of the things that I want to share around people with lived experience, victim and survivors, what they've said around working with social workers? Yeah, please, that's really important. Because I think it's really helpful for us to hold in mind as well that, that more awareness is needed around domestic abuse and that's across a multi-agency context so not just with social workers but Mm -hmm. with members of the police force school staff for example health professionals and that we've already talked about it's really important to have a trauma-informed approach and to be really mindful around use of language that you're not victim shaming and that you're believing people so what do you mean by trauma-informed approach that's a really good question it feels like it's a whole other podcast it is it is yeah but i suppose for me trauma-informed approaches kind of gets banded around quite a lot yeah sometimes without kind of thinking so for me it's really important that we recognize that lots of people that come to us will have come from traumatic experiences what it doesn't mean is that we should individualize trauma to pathologize trauma to people so what i'm yes just ta- yes I agree okay thank you so so it's not just saying right well the individual is the problem because they've got trauma actually we need to also affect like we were talking about last time we also need to look at the impact of society rather than just work with an individual yes okay and so yeah. I guess when I'm saying trauma-informed approach, that means recognising what trauma, how somebody might behave if they're experiencing trauma. Yeah. And that we know that people, when we talk about the fight, flight, freeze, friend response, for example, mm. and all of those kind of can occur within domestic abuse relationships, but also when they're working with professionals. Flight. Flight. Yes. Fight. Yes. Freeze. Yes. Friend. What's friend? Friend is, and there's friend and flop. So, <laughs> so friend is in, or- in order to maintain safety during trauma or danger. Okay. It is to be the friend, to be ah. compliant, not to try and fight that person, not to run away from them, not to just completely freeze, but it's almost that kind of... Okay. Uh, it's an actual response that people might not necessarily realise that they're doing in, in trauma and I guess it's something that people might see within domestic abuse context because if you have a, a victim and a perpetrator the misunderstanding that why don't victims just leave yeah well and, and they might be seen to be defending their perpetrator yeah. to anyone that yeah. might be helping them yeah. and that's a kind of like friend response which is actually if other people think bad of him it's going to get potentially taken out on me well and all sorts of manner of you know it's really complex and also we know that perpetrators aren't all bad Mm. so that's another thing when we listen to the voices of people with lived experience it's recognizing that the barriers to leaving are one of them is i mean there's so many but one of them is around that person isn't all bad and that there Mm. will have been for some people not all but there will be positives to that relationship and i've seen that i've seen people excuse behavior when i 
I've seen people with huge bruises on their faces, for example, completely upset. They're shaking just after something like this has happened. Mm. And then within a day, they'll be going, well, they'll be almost justifying or excusing it. And it's the minimising that really happens. It's weird to see that actually happening when you can physically see the, the, the results of domestic abuse that's a form of what liz kelly talks about in her stages of coercive control Mm. where victim survivors in order to manage their situation minimize or deny the abuse that is happening to them okay and it's really important that you know people working on the front line with people that are experiencing domestic abuse to, to kind of do a bit more i really encourage people to do a bit more reading about liz kelly's Uh, stages of coercive control so going back to the kind of what's common seen as common trauma responses which is fight flight freeze friend and flop so what's flop sorry really immature so flop which is similar to freezing yeah except your body except your muscles kind of become loose and your body goes floppy so when you freeze yeah. you're kind of tense yes but flopping is completely losing yeah. absolute control I used, to, I used to breed frogs so i used to when i used to pick up frogs they tend to flop right so that's what, sorry i'm just looking at you like i'm trying to make sense of that but it's almost like it's about protecting yourself so it's so flopping is like it's about reducing any sense of pain so a bit like disassociation as well another yeah. form of disassociation got it, got it, got it. so people want you know as social workers we need to be mindful of of how people might be presenting and responding to them in a way with compassion and care and knowing that yeah. and not increasing someone's sense of fear or anxiety yeah. in how we're interacting with them for yeah. example yeah also that recovering from domestic abuse takes time so even when somebody's out of a relationship that doesn't mean that their safety is is okay isn't there's, there, there's statistics isn't there that that says that when someone has just left a relationship for a year potentially a year depending on on the level of, of domestic abuse and and uh, so there's more likely to be an incident yes at post separation abuse which is now recognized within the domestic abuse act 21 yeah. so just because you're not in a relationship anymore it means that person can either still maybe harass you, yeah. make threats to you, stalking. Again, yeah. uh, harassment and stalking post-separation is a huge risk. And yeah, that's something yeah. that professionals need to be aware of when working with victim and survivors. And also recognise, particularly when people have got children with their perpetrator, that mm. that ongoing contact between the parent and child, mm. um, there's so many kind of myths really around assessing and managing that contact. But that's also a kind of potential avenue for abuse to continue by well, using the child control, yeah isn't it through coercive control yeah. and children are recognized as victims in their own right now within the domestic abuse act so that's new as well isn't it because before they were just kind of seen they weren't seen as recognized as being part of domestic abuse they were just seen to be witnesses of it but now yeah. they are seen to be part of domestic abuse yes. and violence. Yeah. And when we're thinking about children's experiences and research tells us that children who are living in a household uh, domestic abuse is happening between their parents that 78% of them will witness their parent being harmed mm. uh, and 62% of them will be harmed themselves. Right. Which is really high. And when we think about the kind of work of children's social workers, the majority of work that they intervene, or domestic abuse might not be the presenting issue that families are referred for, mm. but this, there's a high percentage of families will have either in their history mm. or be 
currently experiencing domestic abuse and that's why it's such an important topic and why it's so important that social workers are kind of really skilled on the on this area of work. Well we know from work such as mine for example that children are really really integral in terms of making family relationships work they're not just passive objects yeah. they're not just addendums to relationships yes. but they will work really really hard to make sure that relationships including relationships between adults work whether that means stepping in whether that means trying to pacify whether that means trying to minimize they are active within that process and what you're just describing there is the roles that children take on in families where there's domestic abuse so it might be the caretaker it might be the child that's looking after the parent that's been injured Mm. it might be the referee the one that gets in the middle to try and mediate or calm things down they might become the perfect child so if they remain quiet then they can't rock the boat and that's less likely to create yeah, an yeah. incident of abuse. And they're really real-life experiences that children adopt in order to survive yeah. in what is a really harmful and dangerous environment for their development. Yeah, and it is survival, isn't it? It's yes. literally survival. Yeah. Okay, so what I think would be really helpful to talk about next, Paul, is to think a bit more about the theories that underpin some of the work of of social workers working with um, adults experiencing domestic abuse, as well as like some really helpful tools and also giving giving a bit of a space to think about the actual direct work in terms of working with perpetrators. So can you think about kind of going back to your social work practice, if you've got any examples of those? I suppose in terms of my experience, once when I was doing assessment um, of potential kinship carers, I knew that there had been rumours, mainly from other family members and friends, that it was, uh, and actually the children, they were kind of indicators that it was a domestic abusive, domestic violence uh, relationship. And I remember going in and even as a man, and I'm really aware that I hold a lot of power as a man, mm-hmm. I felt he was very matey with me, which is kind of a weird thing because sometimes I find that a lot of men that I work with tend to be a bit more, a bit less matey and a bit more inquisitive rather than try and get me on side. It felt like he was trying to get me on side. Okay. But also whilst I was walking through the house and whilst I was doing this assessment, it felt like I was walking on eggshells. It felt like I had to be really careful about what I said. Right. It felt like I had to be really careful about where, how I placed myself, making sure that my body language was completely correct, all of this kind of stuff. Yes. And when I came out of that house, I just really reflected on that whole thing about how me, as this powerful social work white man, yeah. can go in there and just have to kind of, it's almost like withdraw into myself and really, really be hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about, well, actually, what must that, if I'm feeling that, mm. What must it be like for people that are living in that experience every single day, especially children? Is there anything that you can identify that the man actually did? Or was there just like this undertones? Because, and the reason why I ask that question is yeah. because people who experience coercive control yeah. sometimes can't quite put a finger on what it is, but and that's why no one else sees it, but yeah. they feel it. So what was your experience? I can't, again, I can't, you know, I can't put my finger, I can't put my finger on it. It was just like there was a tension in the air. It was like that and it was just weird. It just didn't feel natural or nice. 
Okay. So that kind of really listening to actually how, you know, for all, this is an advice for social workers, isn't it? Actually really listening to what your body feels like or your body is telling you. Because we do apply knowledge, practice, you know, theory to practice. But actually it's also around really listening to stuff that we may not be able to articulate. Well, it's using using um, how we feel, but it's also using all of our senses, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is why people like Harry Ferguson, for example, talks about how we use all of our senses when we are doing social work. It's not just that we're listening to people speak. Going in and experiencing, that's why I take children um, in my research on walking tours, why they take me around the house, so that I can experience all these different places and these different spaces they're in um, using my senses. So I just, um, before we move on, I just, there was a bit of hesitancy there for me when I was talking, I didn't know whether to say domestic abuse or domestic violence. What's, 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 what's the right one? People use the term domestic abuse. That's kind of commonly understood and kind of all-encompassing, really, of physical abuse, coercion and control, so psychological abuse, financial abuse, etc. And people kind of moved away from the term violence when people recognised that domestic abuse didn't just look like physical injuries on a body. Okay. That actually it was through other means of abusing people and um, and wearing them down and controlling them through power and control and the different forms that takes. So it's not just to certain events either. Is abuse is something that happens long term over well not necessarily long term that's correct so it's definitely a pattern of behavior yeah however having just said that there will be people that will challenge what i've just said and say actually it is violence because all of it is violence yeah even if it's not physical abusing and holding your abuse of power over somebody yes in whichever form that takes that's violence full stop yes so okay i think you know it's really good just to acknowledge that but i'm going to use abuse from now on as as in the word not (laughs) yes okay so can i just ask you quickly about um the use of images and videos sexual sexual images and videos and things Mm -hmm. like that is that part of domestic abuse because i know that there was that case with those uh the love island people i mean i don't watch love island i think it's you know, if I wanted to see dysfunctional, vacuous relationships, I'd just go and see my friends. Um, but the <laughs> there was that case. And so th- is that that's part of domestic abuse, is it? Yes. So threats to disclose or disclosure of private sexual photographs and films is seen as, a, as an offence within the Domestic Abuse Act 2021. Mm. and it amends so there was some legislation within the uh let me see the criminal justice and courts act from 2015 so it's updated that to the effect that the disclosure of private sexual photographs and films or the threat to disclose is has become an offense now okay not and it hasn't been in historically but it is now Mm. and it should be yes yeah so that was my experience in terms of actually tools i'm not kind of sure I i think i know about things like the circle of abuse but I think that's it so what other tools are there okay well I guess the instant kind of like risk assessment tools mm. are the, is the dash domestic abuse I'm guessing stalking and harassment okay risk risk assessment and I guess it's the dash you know for anyone that doesn't know is a list of questions mm. to assess 
how high risk their domestic abuse situation is. Mm. And using the dash, if people, you know, when high risk is identified, yeah. then of course there's referrals to the Marrick process. Marrick. Being the multi-agency risk assessment conference. And the thing is with the dash to, to hold in mind is that it's only as good as kind of the skill of the person asking the question. Okay. So again, people that have had the experience of the dash being asked to them, mm. if you're not very skilled in it, it might be kind of read off like a bit of a shopping list or a checklist, okay. which is not the best way to interact with somebody who's experiencing domestic abuse. Mm. Also has to be asked within the right environment, mm. but also it's really dependent on the individual because it's also around how honest they feel that they can be in that moment that those questions are being asked. Yeah. So the dash is a really important risk assessment, yeah. but it's also got to be seen within that context as well yeah. and of course it's how you do it it's, it's how um, you do as it as important as it being done yes and that you know static and dynamic risk factors mm. will be there so therefore how somebody answers one week might mean that they're seen as low risk but mm. actually what factors are we looking at that might increase the risk so does it two weeks be, later does it need to be an ongoing assessment then or? essentially i mean you don't need to necessarily use the dash ongoing every time you do a visit but mm. in terms of holding that risk assessment in mind it is definitely being aware of the dynamic and static risk factors mm. that somebody might be experiencing it's also thinking about the kind of context in which the abuse is happening because this can help with the safety planning aspect so for example Johnson talks about the typologies of domestic abuse mm. and he talks about situational couple violence okay what would that be like what would that be so situational couple violence would be you're looking at the risk factor that when both people get drunk okay it escalates into violence okay so that be situation like, yeah. creates violence so something like christmas for example yeah that's a risk factor and that's a situation okay. and that couples potentially can escalate and are lacking problem solving skills yes. or or communication or being able to self-regulate etc so it escalates into violence yes that's no less of a risk than some other forms of abuse because that can still result in in serious harm yeah, of course and then you've got the coercive control which is a pattern of behavior that's seen that yeah. happens over time yeah. and that is generally seen as 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 men to women but of course holding in mind what we said at the start of this context so an example of that is the receipts on the fridge but also things like someone saying you can't go and see your friends for example or yeah you, or i don't or it can be even more subtle than that i guess it can be like i don't like your friends and yes slowly or chipping away at that absolutely or even you know again i referred to liz curley earlier and i'm mm. just going to kind of bring her in again when she's talking about her stages of control you know the first stage starts with a kind of quite quickly urge to merge in a really lovely kind of honeymoon period of urge to merge yeah well, <laughs> okay. i don't think liz kelly uses that term yeah, yeah. but spending all the time together wanting to be in your in your company and therefore oh, the isolation nice. from your kind of you the usual routine begins to fade away so that initial stage is seen as what Liz Kelly calls the grooming stage okay. somebody won't recognise that as abusive yeah. but it is something that people later go on to think I need to look out for red flags because that's where it will occur within that grooming stage but so when you were talking about the friends for example mm. this is where somebody begins to manage the situation okay. so say for example your new partner doesn't say 
oh, you can't go out with your friends. Mm. But so what they do do is that when you come back from spending time with your friends, they're in such a foul, horrible mood with you. That you don't want to do that again. That you think, oh, actually, next time, is it worth yes. going out with my friends? Because yeah. I know how upset it makes my So what partner. I would do is I would hide it, but then they would probably find out and then that would escalate even more because yeah, then they because you're, not, you're, you're lying to them and then all of that kind yeah. of stuff. So you begin to change your behaviour. Yeah. You begin to manage your behaviour by altering it so you still don't recognise it as abusive but you think, actually, they really miss me or their past is they've been cheated on and therefore they're finding it really hard to trust me whenever I go out with my friends. So what I will do mm. is not go out with my friends as much mm. or if I do go out with them, I'm not going to wear my usual dresses or mm. my usual outfit that I'll wear mm. or I'll come back earlier than I usually because if I do anything other than that, the consequences aren't really worth it. Okay, interesting. So that's like a real crucial point of, of coercive control. Yeah, yeah. So actually, Paul, sticking with Liz Kelly's yeah. stages of control, we go from the kind of then the, the distortion of perspective or the reality. So what happens is the victim then begins to take on the perception or the reality of, of the perpetrator. So they stop kind of trusting themselves and thinking, oh, well, actually, if they're saying I was out of order, if they're saying I so was... So this gaslighting? It, it, it's a form of gaslighting, I okay. guess. But, I mean, gaslighting kind of is also a pattern of behaviour where you're distorting somebody's reality mm. and then blaming them mm. for that distortion of reality, mm. you know. Okay. Um, and again like all coercive control is kind of insidious behavior and is really damaging to somebody's sense of self yeah. and making sense of what's happening around them so what happens when Liz Kelly talks about it is that people adopt the view of the perpetrator their view and their opinion right. is more important and more right than the victim okay got it and I think it's really important for professionals and not just social workers but people working with domestic abuse to be aware of Liz Kelly's stages of coercive control because it determines then how you what your intervention should look like and how you intervene and mm. what needs to happen can I give you another anecdote Yes. So I just want to know where this comes from. <laughs> so the, this uh, woman uh, was, I think I mentioned it before, but she was saying, oh, well, he called me a B word. Yeah. And she was saying to me, but that's, you know, that's normal and that's natural. All couples row. Yes. All couples do this. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I was saying to her, I don't think it's normal for people to call each other that in a relationship. And mm. she's, she was basically saying, no, 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 it is. It is. And she was yeah. trying to convince me. But what people are familiar with, actually, if your kind of history or you've grown up in an environment where people do use that terminology towards each other mm. or that verbal abuse is seen as kind of common and accepted mm. then actually people then grow up into adult relationships we know that we form our adult relationships based on our early attachments yeah. and kind of modeling in that sense so for that person it may well have been familiar yeah, but it yeah. is around helping people to accept that actually and there will be people in, in relationships where they call each other names but there might not be a pattern of coercive control yeah because when i was talking about the typologies with Johnson who's yeah. talking about the coercive control it is who holds more power you know what's the impact of that yeah. how are the children in the household feeling yeah. because actually people might argue and call each other names but there isn't an ongoing imbalance of power in that household can I ask another question about uh, lots of um, survivors will say that they chipped away at my confidence so that actually I felt that I had he was the best person that I could um, have had and I wouldn't have got better and all of this kind of stuff in fact I was told that all the time you, you know you'll never get better than me and all of this kind of stuff what, where does that fit into I would say again that might be based on 
whether or not somebody's likely to be re-victimised. So if somebody's had abusive relationships before mm. and then they meet somebody and they think, actually, they weren't as bad as so-and-so because they don't do X, Y and Z. Mm. I'm really lucky that this person loves me and potentially my, you know, my children, if you've got children as well. Mm. I'm just really grateful that he's here showing up. So when he says that, again, it's a kind of form of control or manipulation. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't need to kind of state that to your partner in a healthy relationship relationship and that kind of chipping down of confidence again if you turned up on your first date with somebody and they insulted the way that what you looked or Mm. what you were wearing Mm. you wouldn't see them again (laughs) you wouldn't see them again but actually after six months of being with someone those kind of patterns of behavior have kind of slowly emerged and built up yeah that they've then become normalized yes okay anyway Stages of coercive control are really important for people to be aware of and to know how to intervene and to equip people experiencing domestic abuse, knowing at what point to how to intervene and at what point safe safety. And that's plans. around coercive control. Yes. Okay. Right. So, what are the other stages? Just quickly, really quickly. So, so going back to the other stages of coercive control. Yes, the Kelly's. Control. So the other stages are when somebody recognises that they're now in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Um, and then somebody then goes on to thinking about what are my other alternatives? What are my options? Okay. And then the next point is whether or not they then decide to leave the relationship. So this relationship. is about them coming out of it. Potent- right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And and then whether or not post-separation abuse occurs or that the perpetrator then stops and the abuse ends. Okay, got it, got it. So that's coercive control. So back to Johnson. Yeah, so with the typologies. Yeah, so that we've just done... Situational couple violence, yes. coercive control. Yes. You've then got violent resistance where people react with violence in order to defend themselves. Okay. And seen as so that, it's self-defence. And also they might be protecting their children or whatever. Yes. yes. You've then got separation-instigated violence, where we've talked about yep. post-separation yes. abuse already. And it also talks about mutual violent control, where it happens in a minority of cases, right. which is no, also known as kind of bi-directional, where people yeah. are violent towards each other, but yeah. there isn't an ongoing necessarily... But that's rare, right? In terms of the work that social workers do, yeah. I would say be mindful of allegations and counter allegations because yeah. usually there will be a lot more to it and that there yeah. usually is dynamics of power and control yeah the power is usually asymmetrical in a lot of relationships that we see so one useful tool is the power and control wheel so the Duluth module okay it's a really visual representation yeah. of how abuse can be separated into different forms and, and kind of some examples of what that looks like and I know there's another one isn't it there's another wheel which is the oh the cycle of abuse yes so it's a, it can be see, kind of seen visually as as a cycle or as a kind of wave really because it's around helping people recognize that abuse is a pattern of behaviors it's not a one-off incident yes and so people experiencing abuse or have been isolated yeah. don't see that there's a whole pattern of behaviors really um, there, so there's <laughs> two vi- two examples there so they're both very similar yeah so the cycle was when when tension builds up Mm-hmm. And then the so that's ins- like so people will talk about that as experiencing walking on eggshells. So yes, and then the incident occurs, something happens. So I always kind of think of it like um, I kind of think of it as like a storm. So tension build builds up for this kind of storm, and then the storm kind of hits, and then there's a kind of reconciliation. So that's when afterwards there's kind of the apologising, the excusing, but also the perpetrator can then kind of start making, trying to make amends, kind of cooking meals. Is that in, correct? In some ways, yes, because 
the perpetrator, their tactic may be to suddenly to, to apologise, to say it will never happen again. again. Or some people have described their experience as that not actually happening and the perpetrator saying, you made me do that. Right. That was because you did X, Y and Z. Okay. How silly are you? Yes. Stop being so sensitive and really minimising what yeah. happened. So it could, it talks about, it, it could be either of those, but it is about the reconciliation yeah. afterwards. And then the next bit is when the kind of the calm happens mm. again. And then after the calm, the tension builds up again. But talking about the calm, I just want to pause on that because the calm bit is really important to hold in mind that when people are, their brains are so wired and become attuned to the up and down Mm. of an an abusive relationship, that the calm period doesn't actually feel calm. It can feel quite unnerving or... For some people, when your brain is kind of wired to adrenaline and is familiar with that, the calm phase can then feel a bit boring. So day-to-day mundane bits of a relationship can feel a bit boring, um, a bit dull. And actually people then within that couple dynamic can then get a bit irritated with each other. Yes, okay. And that's when, again, the tension then begins because normality sets in. But I suppose it's, you know, there's... And, and I'm not equating to domestic violence to passion or anything like that. But I suppose that when the intensity of emotions are, are happening, to have that kind of calmness, I can see how that can seem as kind of dullness in the kind of relationship because emotions are kind of are down there instead of heightened all the time and mm, escalating. Mm. Where there's a real strong reward system, isn't yeah, there, yeah. With, is associated with heightened And I suppose for social states. workers it's really important to know that you could be entering at any of those points. Yeah. So just because things seem calm yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that domestic abuse isn't happening. Yes. And again, yeah, absolutely that. And also to think about children's experiences in that because we're also holding children in mind as, yes. as victims in their own right, which is that children have no control over that. And although they'll adopt those roles within the household that we spoke to earlier, actually their experience of feeling walking on eggshells they will be experiencing that as well but won't be able to name it or Mm. identify it necessarily Mm. but it will be an actual their body will be feeling it i think that's a really useful tool to use when working and assessing with families let's just be mindful that we often talk about things in the context of children and families but also we need to think as well in terms of adult social work so there are instances of older adults children Mm -hmm. being perpetrators of domestic abuse towards um, their parents, for example. Older people, yeah, Yeah. if they're carers for family members. Absolutely. We also know in terms of things that are hidden, in terms of LGBTQ relationships, Q plus relationships, where there might not be children, there might, but there might not be children. Well, and the barriers that, the, the additional barriers that people within those communities face in seeking support exactly especially with stereotypes um, marginalization but also their voices sometimes not being heard and not being believed the other thing to be aware of i guess as well is in terms of ability and disability as well and that's another barrier in terms of people being believed but also in terms of them seeking help also sometimes in terms of their vulnerabilities as well there's so much today that I feel like we've covered so uh, quite a lot of ground, Paul, but as you were just kind of noting, there's so many other avenues that we haven't given time to. We haven't talked about honour-based violence and the experience of people yeah. within those communities, the experience that people have had with um, FGM, for example. Yeah. Really big, important topics that social workers need to be aware of. And of course, today we, we've run out of time and haven't we just you know we're just not able to cover it all because it is such a big topic 
just because we haven't spoken about it today it doesn't mean it, anything is less or more important if that makes sense and i think another important thing that i just want to name paul because mm. you know the caring professions or the people you know on those kind of within those safeguarding roles have yep. a real duty of care around safeguarding responsibility to have an understanding and knowledge base on working with domestic abuse. Yeah. But of course, it isn't just pertinent to the people that are living with domestic abuse mm. um, and the victims and survivors of that or the people on the front line. Mm. But it's also in terms of it being an economical crisis. So for the for the non-caring, not I won't say uncaring, the non-caring profession. But for those in the non-caring profession, yes. you know, when we're thinking about kind of the money, the capitalist side of it, the, the <laughs> cost of domestic abuse, yeah. something around 5.5 billion wow. a year. Wow. And that's linked to the physical and mental health services needed to respond to people... Yeah. Um, perpetrating or being a victim of domestic abuse that can be around social care for example yeah that's around kind of the police needing to respond to that mm. the the family justice like within the courts needing to respond to this yeah. this is also around lost productivity of people being up too unwell to go into work so it really is everyone's business then it really is everyone's business it's everyone's business okay. in terms of resources okay this is this is where i would direct people to yeah. for further reading yes so today i've talked about liz kelly yeah I've talked about Lenore Walker. Yeah. I've talked about Johnson's typologies. Yeah. I've talked about Moncton Smith in terms of the homicide timeline, very okay. briefly. Okay. But I was also recommend people looking, reading up on Emma Katz okay. and Jane Callahan. Okay. Yeah. And we'll put those references in the show notes. Yes. So if people want to find out more in terms of organisations as well to link into, then they should go to the Domestic Abuse Commissioner website. Is that correct? Yeah, there's, it's a re the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, Nicole Jacobs. Uh, it's great that we've now got a Domestic Abuse Commissioner that was kind of came in within the legislation mm. around the Domestic Abuse Act. So we've got someone kind of really strongly advocating for victims and survivors and the work in tackling and supporting victims of domestic abuse. Um, so go to the website, which is the uh, domestic abuse commissioner and there's lots of resources and there's research so let's end it as we normally do with a bit of a check-in or check out as you like to say how are you left feeling after talking about all of that i think i'm still kind of feeling quite energized with it and engaged with it and i will be going away thinking how did i say this did i say that because there's so many important things to acknowledge and point and cover mm. and I just know it's not possible to do all of that I really enjoyed um having the opportunity to just spend some time giving this really important topic some some thought Paul yeah, how I about bet. you well I actually came into this um feeling quite uh, ignorant um I thought that I didn't know very much but actually I kind of knew more than I thought mm -hmm. and in terms of my practice and I guess in terms of my research I guess I'm more mindful than I thought I was about it. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I've learnt lots of different stuff. That was, and it's really, really... Am I allowed to say it's been really interesting as well? Yeah. Because it has been really interesting. And, um, and I really welcome the fact that I haven't been talking too much as well. <laughs> so that's See, good. Thank you to everyone that's been listening. And yeah, thank we you. continue to encourage people to give us feedback. It's yes. really welcomed. So um, you can follow us on f Facebook, Twitter... You can um, email us at uh, doodosocialwork at gmail.com as well. Until next time. Until next time. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.